0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the disgraceful policy of America towards refugees from Ukraine, David Nassau will comment, and the wonderful writer Margot Jefferson will talk about her new memoir about growing up in a middle-class black family in Chicago. It's called Constructing a Nervous System. But first, Today's political update. For that, of course, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be
0: here, John. The primaries for the 2022 midterms really begin this week, and so we're thinking about the next six months. And some people think, I'm one of them, that Putin's invasion of of Ukraine seems to have transformed the political landscape for the midterm elections from what they were six months ago. The historical pattern, of course, we've said it a dozen times, is big losses uh, for the party in the White House. But Biden's approval ratings have been going up because of Putin's war, and the support for Donald Trump, famous friend and defender of Putin, have shrunk. So let's start with Trump. He's not on the ballot, but he's made sure this election is about him. And that is good for Democrats.
1: Uh, yes, it is in, uh, in November, because if uh, the candidates that Trump has backed actually win uh, the Republican nomination, it is going to be a strikingly backward-looking crew for whom the uh, one of the primary issues was not the primary issue, was the 2020 election where it's really not clear that any but the hardcore Republican base uh, is, uh, is at this point really interested in replaying that. So that would be a boon for the Democrats. And there are a number of Trump endorsees who have uh, gladly swallowed that particular brand
0: of Kool-Aid. And we've talked a dozen times about voter suppression, about gerrymandering, um, I, I read at theprospect.org um, a piece called about Democracy Summer by Robert Cutner that argued that voter suppression is not, he thinks, is not going to be as big a factor as we feared, uh, because uh, Repub- re- although Republicans have made it harder to vote in the states they control, those states already mostly elect Republicans. Do you agree with that? Well, some of them do, some of them don't. I mean, Georgia is uh,
1: a, a case uh, in which you have uh, uh, Reverend Warnock up for re-election, since he was elected to fill a balance of, uh, of, of a term, and Stacey Abrams up for the governor's election. And you have the same people running the state government who did their uh, darndest to uh, shrink the size of the electorate four years ago. Uh, when Stacey Abrams probably would have won the state house, had you know tens of thousands of disproportionately Democratic voters had they not been lopped off from the polls, so it's uh, it's, it, it's still a crapshoot.
0: And uh, gerrymandering was another one of our biggest worries, but Cutner uh, says at Prospect.org that gerrymandering has turned out pretty much to be a wash. Is that your view? It's not quite a wash. In, in Florida,
1: uh, Ron DeSantis, the uh, Trumpian governor of the state, has put through another redistricting, which eviscerates at least one or two solidly Democratic, heavily Black congressional districts. There are some other states where, frankly, a, a slight Democratic gerrymander been struck down by the courts. I'm thinking of New York in particular. There is an advantage to the Republicans, but Bob, as I call him since he's been my partner in crime at the Prospect for the last 21 years, Bob is right that it's not in and of itself the kind of disaster for Democrats that we originally had feared.
0: The Democratic victories in November depend on high turnout. And of course, that's what the Republicans have been trying to defeat. And turnout, we know, is not the result of spending millions on TV ads or on consultants or on polling. Turnout is most effectively promoted by door-to-door, face-to-face canvassing the ground game. It's called field operations, they call it. Stacey Abrams proved in 2020 how powerful this could be when a decade-long project of face-to-face door-to-door organizing in every county of Georgia carried the state for Biden and sent two Democrats to the Senate, which really saved the country and who knows, maybe the world. So one of the biggest obstacles in 2020 to -to door-to-door, face-to-face organizing was the COVID pandemic. But the COVID pandemic has receded, so now the democratic ground game, democratic field operations can be much more widespread, much stronger, especially in the key swing states, not only Georgia, but Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. North Carolina, and Cutner wrote about a project of progressive groups—I want to ask you a little more about this—Democracy Summer, which would focus on door-to-door, face-to-face organizing. He thinks this could reproduce some of the midterm victories of 2018, the midterms, which had the highest midterm turnout in history, and also the victories in 2020, which, of course, made Joe Biden president. Let's talk about what Democracy Summer could be?
1: Well, two things, maybe even three. First of all, uh, this is a program that was begun simply on a congressional district scale by the invaluable Jamie Raskin, who represents uh, really the Maryland suburbs of, of DC in Congress, getting undergraduates to spend their summers uh, registering voters in an echo of the famous Democracy Summer in Mississippi, Freedom Summer in 1964. Jamie's program has been so successful that the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and others have decided to go for it on a pretty much a nationwide basis. Secondly, I said I had three points here. Secondly, I've, I'm doing some reporting on this right now uh, about Nevada and Arizona, where you have Democratic senators in both states up for re-election. Uh, the State house is uh, uh, in play in, in Arizona. And I was talking to the one union, which really set in motion a whole series of safety protocols for themselves and then did extensive door knocking in those two states and in Philadelphia as well. Uh, Unite here, the union of hotel workers chiefly, which, of course, in Las Vegas is the largest union in the state. And they knocked on three quarters of a million doors uh, in Nevada and also in Arizona in each state, Not, not in both states, in each state in 2020 and uh, are arranging to do more this year. They're starting earlier, they have their crews already beginning on the ground. So yes, I mean, I think this does auger uh, the kind of ground game that the Democrats had in 2018. However, my third point, however, uh, a poll uh, just this past weekend in the Washington Post, which did show some improvement in the approval rating for Joe Biden, as you referenced uh, before, also showed that while the percentage of Democrats who say they're definitely going to vote has gone up since the last time they asked, uh, the percentage of Republicans who say they're definitely going to vote still exceeds the Democratic percentage by 10 percentage points. So, I mean, that's kind of historically normal for a midterm. And we'll see what, if anything, the Democrats can do on the ground to counteract that.
0: And of course, we always worry about the money. We've always complained that campaigns are so expensive and that big money has ruined American democracy. Our view is that candidates' money should not go to pay for TV ads or consultants or polling, but should pay for what they call field operations, local organizations. Stacey Abrams, has won in every county of Georgia, even the counties that they're not going to win. They have field operations to turn out their supporters who are there. But the fact is the Democrats in the last few elections have raised significantly more money than the Republicans. It's dark money. It's from a lot, it's from some of these Democratic uh, billionaires who are social liberals, and some of them even political liberals. But it means that Republicans do not have a money advantage and probably uh, won't in 2022. Or am I being too optimistic about this? I think
1: you're being a little too optimistic. Uh, but the Democrats do have a record of producing both money and dark money. But if you look at some of the individual face-offs that are likely to happen in to 2022, we may have a classic in Pennsylvania for the uh, Senate seat, that will be open in which uh, a hedge fund uh, billionaire could end up running against the states uh, at running as a Republican against uh, the the leader on the the Democratic side uh, is Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who you know looks like a professional wrestler with tattoos, <laughs> the shaved head, he's six foot eight. If he can't connect with you know the fringes of the working class, I don't know who can. And you know, on top of all that, he's a Bernie supporter, so. Uh, He brings uh, a lot to the table, but just the visual contrast of the hedge fund guy to uh, this uh, large progressive lunk who is uh, (laughs) likely to be the Democratic nominee will, will uh, will be an interesting test in a certain sense. I mean, you can just easily imagine the kind of populist in a left sense, populist campaign. That Fetterman could run against a hedge fund guy, and uh, that will be uh, not only politically significant, of course, because the Democrats need to pick up a couple Senate seats so they can overcome the Mansion Cinema roadblock. Uh, but you know, just even in cultural terms, that will be, I, I think, really fascinating.
0: <clears throat> All power to John Fetterman. Yes, the Biden's biggest challenge, <clears throat> which is a big issue in this midterm, is, of course, inflation. We've talked about it here many times. It's the highest right now. It's been in 40 years, caused in part, made worse by the war, but also by these underlying supply chain shortages that have appeared in the last couple of years. What is to be done about the supply chain shortages?
1: Well, about the supply chain shortages, uh, nothing short term is really, uh, you know, possible. Uh, you know, we, we, we spent a good 30 years offshoring uh, our own production of goods, courtesy of Wall Street pressure on corporations that they should lower their labor costs. Uh, and you can't, uh, you know, just snap a finger and recreate the kind of domestic production uh, at which this nation once excelled at. Uh, you, there are, you know, there's a bill currently in conference committee uh, in, in Congress that would appropriate funds to uh, s- semiconductor and computer chip manufacturers, because it turns out that uh, everything from your car to your plane to your iPhone to your laptop uh, needs those and we can't really produce those absent, uh, absent those chips. Um, th- th- I mean, there are proposals to uh, that the Biden administration has made, uh, you know, that could really have teeth. And there's uh, some tr- shifts in trade policy, uh, th- all of which could lead to uh, the onshoring, not the offshoring or the reshoring of some production. So, but supply chain, you know, even if all of this stuff is enacted, that takes time. So the other question is. What can uh, the Democrats do to reduce people's living expenses right now?
0: And I believe you have some suggestions on that. Yeah, front. yeah I actually,
1: well, one is to pass legislation that would uh, reduce cost of prescription drugs, uh, which you could do by letting Medicare uh, bargain uh, those prices down. Uh, another would, would be uh, in, in a reconciliation bill, devoting uh, some of that bill to um, reducing the cost of, uh, of of child care, and I, I note uh, just in the last week that the state of New Mexico, which is not normally regarded as the most progressive state in the union, but the state of New Mexico now will publicly subsidize uh, child care for uh, all of its uh, uh, you know all, all of its residents with little kids, uh, which is I think a huge step forward. And you begin to wonder why California, which has an immense budget surplus in New York, which has a large one, uh, haven't done that already. Uh, so those kinds of things are are real and could be uh, could be done now. And of course, a child tax credit uh, would uh, also enable people with uh, small, you know, with children uh, uh, to have lower cost of living expenses. So all of that is in the realm of the possible rain. But, you know, again, you need the all 50 Democrats willing to vote for a reconciliation bill. And uh, we don't know if we have more than 48.
0: Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America. And of course, the front lines are at the Amazon warehouses. I noticed that Amazon stock lost $206 billion in value on Friday. It's one of the worst cases of a one-day loss in the history of Wall Street. 14% loss. Uh, uh, shrinkage of the value of Amazon in one day. Um, The market seems to think Amazon has expanded too much. Uh, At one point, apparently, they were opening a new warehouse somewhere in the United States, one every 24 hours. Uh, This was partly in response to the pandemic, but partly in response to their long range and actually now short range plan that they need to move from one day delivery to same day delivery to be able to beat the competition from Walmart and and Costco. Um, So they need all these extra warehouses. Um, But now Wall Street seems to think they have too many workers. Uh, What do you make of this? Well, I mean the fact is people are now beginning
1: to go back to what was considered normal shopping before the pandemic, which didn't usually involve uh getting a delivery from Amazon. And so in that sense, yes. Uh, you know, the uh, you know, it may have been in the uh Amazon's game plan to uh, you know, uh, sh- cut delivery time to several nanoseconds, but <laughs> Be that as it may, they probably at this point have an overcapacity, which they're going to deal with, I suspect, by cutting their, uh, their workforce. Now, they have a self-cutting workforce.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, studies do. have
1: shown that the annual turnover rate in an Amazon warehouse is 150%, which means that the average employee is there for about eight, nine months uh, and then has had it. And that's part of the plan. They know the job wears you out. Uh, you know, they, they, hi- they get you in there by paying 18 bucks an hour, which is better in m- most parts of the country than comparable employment. Uh, and they know they're going to burn you out. And so the, the, eight, the $18 brings you in. What the work entails takes you out. Uh, and, you know, that is sort of Amazon's dirty little secret. Uh, you know, just maybe making work even more onerous for getting rid of more workers.
0: One last thing. News today about Jared Kushner. He's writing a book. His publisher announced a memoir of life and work in the Trump White House that will be titled Breaking History, publication date at the beginning of August. It will describe, according to the publisher, Jared Kushner, quote, negotiating the largest trade deal in American history, passing bipartisan criminal justice reform and achieving the most significant breakthrough in diplomacy in the last 50 years, peace in the Middle East. My question for you is, how did we miss these stories?
1: I haven't heard people refer to the Kushner Plan in quite the same way that they refer to say, the Marshall Plan, <laughs> uh, but you know, maybe we, we just all slept through it. I just am waiting with
0: bated breath. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's now more than two months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and more than four million Ukrainians have fled to other countries. Biden announced last week new plans which he said would expedite the arrival of Ukrainian refugees in the United States, but the U.S. plan seems very small. For comment, we turn to David Nassau. He taught history for a long time at the CUNY Grad Center. He's written many award winning books, most recently, The Last Million. Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. We talked about it here. He also writes for The New York Times and The Nation. David Nassau, welcome back.
2: Delighted to be here.
0: Let's review the situation. It's now 5 million Ukrainian refugees. Where are they now?
2: 5 million refugees, meaning they've left Ukraine. There are probably just as many who have left their homes in Ukraine but have not crossed the border, so they're not officially refugees. So we're talking to 10 to 12 million Ukrainians who are displaced from their homes, from their communities, from their cities and towns. Five million of them, again, have crossed the borders, and three million of them are now in Poland. More than three-quarters of a million in Romania, Uh, 426, 450,000 in Moldova, almost 500,000 in Hungary, 350,000 in Slovakia. Now, a lot of them are on their way. This is their first stop because the European Union has expedited transfer movement into every one of the 27 countries in the European Union. And they can cross the borders and they can get help and assistance and remain for 18 months to two years longer if it's if it's going to be necessary. Uh, So there are a number we we don't have the figures in in Sweden, in the UK, in France, all through Europe.
0: So the EU is doing a lot. And then there's Canada, which can be compared to the United States. What is Canada's policy right now towards Ukrainian refugees?
2: Yeah, Canada almost immediately after the, within weeks after the invasion, um, set up what it called a special accelerated temporary residence pathway. There's no limit to the number of Ukrainians. And they made it very easy for Ukrainians to seek refuge in Canada. And once they get there to get assistance to be able to work and to live, there are no pathways as yet established towards citizenship. But Canada, which has a large Ukrainian population, is welcoming as many refugees as, as can get there.
0: And that takes us to the United States. It took Joe Biden a long time to decide what to do. Uh, First, there was a policy announced at the end of March to admit 100,000 refugees from Ukraine who already had family members in the United States. Under that policy, what instructions were Ukrainians given by the State Department about how to get into this program? Let me
2: preface what is to come by saying that the American response to the Ukrainian crisis in terms of Accepting refugees has been nothing less than disgraceful. It took a month before the Biden administration said, We'll accept 100,000. But then it said, We'll accept 100,000, and this is what you do. Before you can come to the United States, you have to be certified by the United Nations, the UN High Commission for Refugees. You have to be certified as a refugee. So you've got to go to one of the UNHCR offices, get certified as a refugee. Once you've done that, you can begin the process of applying for asylum as a refugee in the United States.
0: The process takes between two and ten years. Wait, wait a minute. It takes between two and ten years to get to be declared a refugee eligible to admission for admission to the United States? No,
2: you can be declared a refugee. That only takes six months to a year, depending on backlog. But then it takes another year to eight or nine years once you've got this refugee status from the UN before you can be admitted under the various refugee programs to the United States. If you are a Ukrainian and you want to enter the United States as a refugee, you are told, if you go to the State Department website, that Ukrainians should not attempt to apply for visas in order to travel to the United States as refugees, period. Then they're directed to the UN offices. The process is a frightening one. It is Byzantine in the number of steps refugees have to go through. And then there is a limit, a limit to the amount of refugees the United States will accept. And it is far below 100,000 for the refugees from every country, including the Ukraine. The National Immigration Forum, which is a think tank and an advocacy group, says that it estimates the process again to take between two and ten years between the Ukrainian before the Ukrainians can get to the United States.
0: We're based here in Los Angeles, and it's a lot of news here about a large Ukrainian refugee population that has flown to Tijuana and is getting access to the United States through that San Diego border crossing. How has that been possible given this whole refugee business?
2: Let me, again, preface this with, with two propositions that I know from my own research. One is the United States has never been friendly to any immigrants except those from a couple of Western European nations. Second, we are more friendly to white Europeans who pray to Jesus (laughs) than we are to any other refugees.
0: Nice way of putting it. So the Ukrainians have
2: any number of barriers put before them before they can enter the United States, but many fewer barriers than Africans, Asians, Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Central Americans, Mexicans. Haitians. Haitians. (laughs) I mean, we can can go on. Um, Then everyone who is not white, European, and uh, Christian. So what the Ukrainians have been doing is they have their own network, those with money. They have their own network and they've been trading information. And it became apparent quickly that the easiest way into the United States was through Mexico. You can take a plane from anywhere in Europe to Mexico and enter Mexico without a visa. It's one of the only countries that does not require a visa. So Ukrainians have been flying into Tijuana, some to Mexico City, and then coming to the border. Now, for everyone except the Ukrainians, once you get to the border, you are turned away. Or you are allowed to put one foot in and then deport it back to where you came from. Or you are told, if you want to apply for ref- for um, asylum, wait in Mexico and, you know, we'll let you know in six months, a year, two years, whether you've been accepted. Trump, in this brilliantly malicious, nefarious, I mean, it wasn't his idea, it was Stephen Miller's idea, I believe, they used the COVID crisis to close the border. Through something called Title 42, they said no one, no one can come into the United States because they risk bringing COVID with them. There is, however, border agents can make exceptions. The Department of Homeland Services issued a letter, a special letter, that they sent to all the border control agents. And they said, we're issuing a blanket exemption for all Ukrainians. The border remains closed because of COVID.
0: But if you're a Ukrainian, you're allowed in. And indeed, thousands have managed to get into the United States through that route. They come into the United States
2: and they are allowed to stay until their court appearance comes up, unlike everybody else. And they're allowed to work, but there is absolutely no path to citizenship. As a matter of fact, there is no path to citizenship under any of the Biden plans,
0: including the most recent plan. So this brings us to the plan that Biden announced on April 22nd, which is he's going to close the Mexico route and create a different, new and improved plan. Tell us about that one.
2: The, the new and improved plan is, uh, is another disaster. You know, the, the, the proof of whether these plans are viable or not is, is in the details. And if you read very, very carefully, this plan has a fancy name. I don't know, like Uniting for Ukrainians or something like that. Sounds good. OK, but no Ukrainian can apply to come into the United States under this new plan you've gotta have a sponsor apply for you. That sponsor has to be vetted, screened, approved. And once that sponsor is approved, then that sponsor can name a particular Ukrainian individual or a group of individuals. Those Ukrainian individuals, once they've been sponsored, have to go through an elaborate process of further screening, of testing, not simply COVID testing, but all sorts of other things, including biometric screening. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good to me. Um, so under this new process, it is going to take months, if not years, for Ukrainians to go through, for their sponsors to get certified, then for the individual Ukrainians to be certified. Then they're only led into the United States for a brief, for a two-year period maximum.
0: So my question here is, for the two-year period, they're given something called temporary humanitarian parole. Is that what refugees get? No, this is very complicated. No, the refugee
2: process is a different one. The humanitarian parole was brought into being for the Afghans to bring Afghan refugees into this country. But the emphasis is on temporary. Temporary. There is no path to citizenship. These temporary parole expire some 18 months, some two years. You're allowed to work if you get another set of permissions. But again, this is not like, you know, my great grandparents, when they came here in 1905, you know, they came through Ellis Island. They came into New York. They worked Then they applied for citizenship. And if they spoke a little bit of English, you know, and can answer three questions, they got citizenship. It was assumed that immigration led to citizenship. That is no longer the case and certainly not with the Ukrainians.
0: Why? Why do you think the Biden administration has been so disgraceful in their treatment of Ukrainian refugees. As you say, these people are not from Haiti or Central America. They're white people from Europe. You would think they might be treated better, given what we know about America, and yet not much better. Why do you think Biden is doing this?
2: I think Biden understands that the process of giving priority, of creating special programs to let the Ukrainians in, highlights the racist nature of American immigration and refugee policy. There can be nothing clearer. All you got to do is go to the border and watch as the Ukrainians are invited in and the Mexicans are, are pushed back and the Guatemalans are pushed back and the Africans from the Cameroons who are trying to get in are pushed back. The the process is, is disgraceful. If If I can quote from Arika Pinheiro of Al Otro Lotto, a nonprofit that provides legal and humanitarian assistance. Quote, the disparate treatment is striking. The Europeans are treated like human beings and the black and brown migrants are screamed at and told to get back, just go away. The more advantages given to the Ukrainians, the greater the disparities will be emphasized, and the more American immigration and refugee policy will be made manifest its racist elements. And I think the Biden administration just doesn't, doesn't want to do that,
0: can't do that. I have one other question. Biden's policy, terrible as it is, has still been criticized by some Republicans and people on the right for being too much. What kind of argument are they making and how much power do they have in this process?
2: Yeah, they they have a lot of power and they have a lot of power, especially through the courts. I mean, when for year after year after year after year, Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society and then the Trump people put in the courts, highly partisan and unqualified jurists, these same jurists now are listening to the Republican arguments and the tiniest humanitarian aid or regulation for immigrants is being, you know, turned down, turned away. Biden has not been able to undo much of the frightening legacy of the Trump administration. And when he attempts to do it, um, the Republican senators, Rick Scott and a number of senators wrote very early on, a nasty letter to the Department of Homeland Services, the secretary. And they said, in effect, don't let in the Ukrainians, because if you let in the Ukrainians, it's the first step towards an invasion of our borders. I guess in the last couple of days, there's been a delegation that went to the border. And one of the congressmen said, Ukraine is being invaded by Russia and we are about to be invaded by refugees. I think the Biden administration realizes as it approaches the midterms, a hot button issue. And the Biden administration does not want immigration to become an issue in the midterms, nor do congressmen and senators from a number of states who are scared to death that the election will be run with the main topic of discussion, immigration policy, and opening the borders to these
0: refugees. David Nassau, his new piece for The Nation magazine is called Don't Give Us You're Tired, You're Poor. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, David. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Margot Jefferson about her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir. Her earlier memoir, Negro Land, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2016. We talked about it here, about growing up in Chicago in a world of black respectability and then going to college in the black power era. Before that book, she had won a Pulitzer Prize for Criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. And she's also written for The Nation magazine. Margot Jefferson, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to return. Well, you wrote in Negro Land, that's the world in which you grew up, that one of its foundational principles was you don't tell your secrets to strangers, certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, and Failure. Seems like with this new book, you have left Negro Land forever. Uh, Right at the beginning, you're already telling us about your workaday monster. This is a stunning passage where your monster tells you that you are a coward in work and love and that it's time to blame your dead parents, but that to do that, you must be nuanced, you must be literary. What was it like to write those parts to tell secrets about weakness and failure to strangers to violate your parents' principles?
3: Well, you know, I had done some violating in Negro Land. My father had died by the time I started writing Negro Land, but my mother's feelings were mixed. She would supply me with stories and anecdotes, and, you know, so a part of her, the, um, the waggish <laughs> the literary part was very interested in all of this. So I thought I will take these liberties. But in any case, here I am alone in the world in that way, an orphan who's an adult. Um, it was mm, difficult, but also, but it was exciting um, because once you identify, name something you call a monster, you know, you've, you've entered non-realistic territory and your imagination Gives your emotions license, you know. So I thought, all right, um, and it, it's a code, you know. It's a series of metaphors, so it's it's fine. And it, um, I, the thing that I, I suppose I I still dread about um, self revelation is self satisfaction, uh, exonerating yourself somehow <laughs> by some means or another when nobody else gets exonerated or excused. And I I wrote that. And I tried to write it, and I think I did in a way that pointed the, the ironies, the um, tiny little um, self-indulgent hypocrisies, um, mm-hmm. but, all, but uh, necessities also, emotional necessities that pointed them out um, and made them into a story, you know, um, a dialogue, a scene. And, you know, that old trope of the, of the second self... You know, Mm -hmm. which the monster is in a way. It's amazing how flexible and fluid that one still is.
0: Well, most of the book is not about your monster. There's many exhilarating parts, like uh, you and your sister doing Ike and Tina. It's 1961. You were 13. Were you Ike or were you Tina?
3: Well, I was both the Ikeettes initially, and then I really had to step in and be Ike. (laughs) <laughs> my, my sister was claiming Tina. Um, so I, you know, I I had to work with that as best I could. Uh, all of us um, were thrilled by their music and every girl, you know, was enraptured by Tina. But since she claimed her, you know, <laughs> I had to, you know, like an actor with maybe a lesser part. I, I had to do what I could and I ended up getting left with this Unexpected um, interest, <laughs> continuing lifelong interest in the um, the chill killer, the chilly killer mysteries of Ike Turner.
0: On the other hand, Ella Fitzgerald, we have to talk about Ella Fitz- you and Ella Fitzgerald. Her singing was perfect, but there was something about Ella that bothered you, the way in which she was not perfect.
3: Exactly. You know, I of course first heard her, as everyone of my generation did, when I was when I was a girl and um, The records were dreamy, and my parents spoke about them, and that voice is is enchanting. But as a little girl in the 50s and, you know, into the 60s, I was craving, you know, questing for glamour, for irreproachable, (laughs) flawless glamour. Um, I think all girls of all races and ethnicities were. There was a particular intensity if you were black or another person of color because you, know, you were not sanctioned um, as a potentially beautiful desirable creature by the larger culture. So you know the investment for example in Lena Horne, who was accepted you know as an icon of culture was huge. Um, so Ella, Ella threw me off. Um, she was you know, she was very she was well spoken, she dressed well, but she was she was a hefty matron. And the sweat, she was one of the only, she was the only woman I ever saw on television, I mean, working so hard and so openly that sweat dripped down her face. Working class labor, what is the, I, I associated sweat with, and manliness, you No, know? no. Mm. What it says now, of course, is I brook no interference with my needs as a musician, you mm-hmm. <laughs> know, mm-hmm. But it it rattled me. I was very involved in um, manners and proprieties, at least their surfaces, and you know, very anxious about what you violated and what the cost was.
0: Her greatest album was Ella in Berlin, nineteen sixty, which ends with her incredible performance of "How High the Moon," song from the forties. Somewhere there's music. This super fast scat singing of hers draws on quotes from, you You discovered, 45 other songs, including to the tune of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, she sings Sweat Gets in My Eyes. Ella, drawing on 45 other songs in six minutes of singing is a little bit like what you do in this book. Oh, don't I wish. But, but you
3: know, let's say it became a kind of um, model, at least for me. That's right. The the reaching out the um, almost excessiveness and then you know the bringing it in um, to shape it and structure it yeah well that's very nice I love that um, I, um, it, it, <laughs> I I you know it, I guess it was a model isn't it funny that I haven't thought of it in that way when that chapter is so obsessed you know, with Ella but
0: yeah. Then we get to Bing Crosby, one of the whitest and one of the least sweaty people on earth. Mr. White Christmas, you call him. The most shocking sentence in your book is, I'm Bing Crosby. Why? You know, there, again, it's a
3: little bit like Ike Turner. There's a, it's a, it's always a mystery to these um, non-licensed obsessions. Um, but I must also add one of the things that intrigued me. First of all, there's a kind of triumphant traditional, mainstream, nothing is disturbing the rules and regulations and myths of American culture. Utter power, white male power, uninhibited, uninterrupted, not having to labor, you know, to assert itself being very cool. And that that spectacle was fascinating. The other thing though that intrigued me, um, which Gary Giddens of course um, explores so well in his Bing Crosby work, he had begun as um, a pop jazz singer who worshipped Louis Armstrong and Big Spiderback and Ethel Waters, mm-hmm. and you can hear—you know—again, it's that sense of the double and triple personalities. You hear that in the early work, you know, uh, with the Paul Whiteman band, with the quote mm-hmm. Rhythm Boys. Then you watch these transformations <laughs> you know, into Dear Hearts and Gentle People, into the Bob Hope movies, into a frightening kind of Mr. America, but that he could get away with all of it is what fascinated me. And that's what made me feel that it was in my version of um, claiming the license that a minstrel has. You put on that mask um, because they have something you want, but you drop it when it's over. You know, it's, it's, it's presuming. It's presuming. So I wanted to reverse that power dynamic.
0: One of my favorite moments in the book comes when you're in eighth grade, 1960, when you see West Side Story, the stage play with Cheetah Rivera singing, I want to live in America. You write, Latins are a deluxe signifier for Negroes on stage and screen, an alluring, enviable edition of non-white people with histories not wholly bound to the history of slavery in the United States. What a great sentence. (laughs) Well,
3: thank you. Um, you know, and also with a range of looks that allowed them, you know, the lighter skin sometimes, the straighter hair, or, you know, the well, I'm Mexican. Nah. <laughs> not that, now, that's been turned into, by a certain right wing <laughs> quarters, an insult. but in but in the old days, ah, you know, that was that was somewhere. It still had a place in the culture. The same was true if you think of, and which I think I did write about in land flower drum song. For example, the same and the King and I, Asians could um, occupy that same role from the point of view of blacks in those those movies.
0: You know, a limited, controlled, and contained glamour, but glamour. Can we talk about black feminist anger modes? What you call your muses, your coaches, and your exemplars, which I guess starts with Nina Simone. You say, my friends and I were besotted with Nina Simone. You call her works in the 70s an oracle of our collective grief and fury. Wow. She was. And actually,
3: interestingly enough, for male listeners too, you know, she she really claimed that grief and fury. Having begun um, always with that extraordinary voice and power, but having begun much more in the kind of uh, jazz American popular song mode, uh, those first, you know, that first album, um, you know, her versions of "I Love You, Porgy" or um, "Mood Indigo," uh, but always um, that intensity that's that implied. I'm controlling this song, you know. I'm the song is not controlling me or offering mm-hmm. me a vehicle to be um, enchanting. I'm controlling it. I'm interpreting it. I'm I'm crafting it with my persona. And then, you know, she did move into this um, really almost epic um, political god and goddess-like um, presence. We, we didn't know at the time that she was. Now we do. At the same time, you know, suffering hugely um, emotionally, um, bipolar, et cetera, which makes her to me all the more um, impressive, actually. Yeah. yeah, with an edge of tragedy um, because of all that pressure placed on her to be as a radical, even as a black radical exemplary, um, as had been pressed on her <laughs> when she was more a jazz performer.
0: But astonishing, you know, uh, one of a kind. But you decide that you prefer for yourself what you call the counter diva mode, where anger uses comic brevity. Tell us about that.
3: Well, you know, we work with um, our limitations as well as our advantages. <laughs> so um, I recognize, particularly from my very early days dabbling in acting, you know, Yay. that I I do better with certain modes of aggressive reserve <laughs> um, and playing, underplaying something rather than overplaying it. So. You know, I one studies that, um, and the, that whole chapter of female anger, which actually starts with adolescent, you know, modes. Um, you know, it really is all about how you make your way through um, all of these feminine styles. Some blatantly angry, very few um, in the in the early days. Um, some very with angry subterfuge, you know, um, and you you adapt what you can. For your yeah. own circumstances, you know. My oh, and also for your own aesthetics, you know. With my sister, as as uh, it was Martha Graham. You know, she was a modern dancer, but you know, when, when she saw Martha Graham pull um, a red cloth out of what were her innards <laughs> to simulate Medea, you know. She, what? You know, where else could you achieve that kind of power? You know, you internalize those those things. And every movie of Betty Davis is for the same reason. Even when Betty lost, <laughs> her style won out and her will. Her will won out.
0: At the very end of your book, you describe a meeting you attended of a group called Black Women for Wages for Housework. This is in the 70s. You quote a speaker who says, I'm tired. I'm tired for what my grandmama did. And you wrote in your diary that you were disdainful about what you called wearing the garb of ancestral suffering. This was 40 some years ago. What do you think about that today? I see what I was
3: saying. I didn't want to, and it was something a lot of um, feminists and black feminists in particular were examining. You know, how do we do justice to history without? Claiming that suffering and moving ahead with it, almost as if it were a theatrical, you know, garment to wear. I think I was harsh on that young woman, but I see um, what I was grappling with in myself. Uh, because I then go on to talk about my grandmother and and the the power and the um, pressure um, exerted by that power. Of the figure of the black grandmother, you know, <laughs> who can do everything and, and who represents um, all that is noble, but also was oppressive in that in your history. So you are constantly feeling you must live that, up to that.
0: It's just a really moving
3: part of your book. I you know partly because I I adored my grandmother you know so that combination of of rapture and intimidation with um, an authority figure is is an authority figure who has personal authority but also has historical authority that is formidable um, as a formative influence.
0: So you have a wonderful list, which is actually a description of what how your parents' world regarded black popular culture, but I think it also applies to to you in, in this book. you have used, honored, disdained, studied, learned from, borrowed from, stolen from, been inspired by gone slumming in this huge list of books and movies of music. It's the first book I know of to bring Willa Cather next to Ike Turner. And you overcame the voice that said, you can't do that. So all I can say to that is, wow, and thank you. (laughs)
3: Let me just add that Willa and Ike are not in the same chapter. (laughs) 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 They inhabit this larger landscape of the same book. Um, And yes, that passage you read, I believe that, you know, I was writing, I think, in that passage, as you say, about our relations to Black culture, but it's also what I'm doing with white culture, isn't it?
0: Margot Jefferson's new book is Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Margot, thank you so much for talking with us today.
3: Thank you.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.